exciting and new. You are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is the Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that and like you right now. So be encouraged. And let your light shine. What are you going to ask me? You said you didn't want to know. First question, though. All right, let me put on my professional thoughts. Okay, I'm ready. It Never mind. The dirt. No, okay. I will tell you, it oh. was Easter. No, stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get into the you good. You can say whatever Let's just you skip want. right over. This is the part where I think that <laughs> we do a disservice to people because we skip over easily to get to the point where you say, this is how wonderful everything is now. Wasn't God good? Because I do remember thinking that in the middle of the dirt is where the story should be told because that's where people are hurting and not after when you read the books because I wanted to burn them. They're like, well, this is good because you just, you know, God was so good. You do not feel like that in the middle, but he is good. Like I could feel that peace inside. If you can imagine feeling peace while you burn down, that's kind of how it feels. I think that books should be written in the middle, not at the end. Oh my gosh, I'm going to cry already. Okay. (laughs) We didn't even start. I know. (laughs) This is fun, Kate. This is going to be so fun. (laughs) Welcome, Shine Podcast listeners. Hi there. This is Betty, and I'm here with Kathy today. (laughs) I'm going to start using your real name. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You would not. I don't even have anything to say, and you're afraid of it. shooting eye daggers at me. It's Beth. (laughs) It's Kate. Hello. And we are here in the month of love, shining our spotlight on the beautiful, wonderful Melanie Good. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, Beth. There's a lot of eye daggers tonight everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Because don't say the month of love and then bring in all the divorce people. Oh, okay. That's just rude. (laughs) (laughs) You just say, you know, this month. I can't sing the love boats. We're here with Melanie Good, shining the spotlight on some of her experience of how divorce has impacted her personally and also her experience professionally. So thanks for being with us today, Mel. Thank you. Melanie is a licensed independent social worker. She's been in that field for 25 years. She is a clinic director for a private practice and has been in that position for 10 years. She works with families and couples doing counseling. She also has her own private practice. She's full right now, not taking any new clients, in case you're wondering. (laughs) But she was married for 23 years and has been divorced for the past five years. She's the mother of three adult children. And we're so happy to have you here to talk to us today. She was born and raised in Columbiana. Crestview Rebels graduate class of 2020. No, just kidding. (laughs) So you were rivals. Mm, yeah, we she didn't like us. <clears throat> yeah. Me and my friend. Did you ever find that out? Yeah, with you, remember? Oh, that's right. So, Mel, you found yourself in a interesting situation. You have been doing family counseling and couple counseling for 25 years. And after 23 years of marriage, you found yourself on the other side of marriage. Do you want to share your story with us? Sure. So I remember going into my private practice. This is a thing that stands out for me. And that's at a church. 
sitting with the secretary to tell her that this is happening, that I found this out and that this marriage was going to end. And I remember crying with her and saying, am I still going to be able to work here? Am I still going to be able to do counseling? And her response was, and still is to this day, what kind of people would we be if you couldn't work here? Of course you can work here. So that was one of the things I first remember when this occurred because my career, my reputation, all of our friendships, the whole community growing up here, being a part of this community and the church and work, it's all built around family for all these years. And it didn't just affect me and my kids. It had the ability to affect a lot. And it really turned your whole world upside down. Yeah. And then I went to all my friends, to all the couples that we were friends with through the churches and through the community in all of our relationships. So these are the first things I remember going to all those different people by myself to tell them what was going to occur. That was the first thing that I had to face after facing finding out the betrayal and the secrecy of my life, what it had been for 23 years, is going from all the places to all the people that we were family and friends with and telling them, then to to the church where I was working, and then to kids that I was involved with that I even had working for me and stuff because I felt responsible to them to live a life of integrity. So I wanted to personally talk with each one of them to tell them I was sorry that this was happening to yet another person in their lives. You were mentioning earlier how you feel like books should be written in the middle of the story because that's what is really going to benefit you and not at the end when everybody's like, it's okay, it's all good. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey in the middle of the story, in the middle of working through your life turning upside down? I remember being on my bathroom floor. Um, I used to do, well, and I still do, like all these projects and things, and I would fix things and do whatever. And I remember being on my bathroom floor that summer to clean out the drain or whatever, and I would take it apart. But trying to put it back together, I just couldn't make it happen. And I got so frustrated, and I remember pounding on the sink, why is everything so hard? And we just lost my gourd over small things things like that that I'd done a bunch of times, but now everything felt so hard and it was hard. And if I got hung up on something, you know, I would just have these breakdowns by myself, you know, in these places like that over something. It felt so hard just to get this sink apart and back together, which I had always done. I just remember feeling like I wanted to find books that were messy. That's what I would say. I want to read from people that will write the mess. And I would even be mad if I got a book, I wanted to rip it up. If it said, well, God is great. And here's how everything turns out good. I hated the phrase. And I'm still not totally at peace with the phrase, the best is yet to come. Kind of really hated that. It would be bitter when I would see that hanging around. And I'm like, what is that supposed to mean? Because I feel like continually throughout life, I think some people get dealt different levels of suffering. Like I see it in my work. I see it in my personal life. And for some people, it does not feel like the best comes. It's like, what next is coming? And I see that. I deal in suffering every day in my work. And I wouldn't say that my life has been easy, even though I don't feel like it's something that, I mean, I just can't imagine my life being different than what it's been. I'm not bitter about my life, resentful. You guys know me. I love life. But I think there's different levels of suffering that seems to be handed out to people. Some people seem like they go through nothing. Other people seem like they go through everything. Anyway, yeah, in the middle, I felt like someone needs to write this down, what this feels like, because this is what people need to know when they're in it. I don't know what else to tell you that it feels like it's dark and it's a struggle. And I remember being with you, Beth, at the gym and we were working out and I said, 
And this was me starting to get better. And I said, I just cannot see past this far, past the end of my nose. And I used to have vision for this year and then next year and then in 10 years and then I'm going to build this and then I'm going to do that. Then this is going to happen and then this. And I could not literally see past the end of my nose. I just couldn't see any day past right now. And that was when I was getting better. Because of your profession and your 25 years experience, you had a lot of knowledge and you had a lot of experience and you have seen this happen. But when it happened to you and you were walking through it, even though you had those tools and you had that information and you had resources, it still hit you like a truck Mm -hmm. and feeling like I can't see this far in front of my face when you were That's when you are on your way to healing. It is messy and scary and hard. I have seen you walk this journey of really wanting to get healthy and be whole before you jump into anything else and taking the time to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about that process for you of what you've done and how you've worked so hard to be in a healthy space Can you talk to us about the process of how you worked so hard to be in a healthy space after this happened to you? Yeah, sure. I think that's driven out of a couple things. First, being a person of integrity, that I wouldn't have my clients and the people that I teach. I wouldn't expect something of them that I wouldn't expect of myself. And probably even above that, that I can never go through what I've gone through again. What you don't heal, then you'll repeat. And so that can't happen. I know I don't have capacity in me for that to ever happen again. And I don't want to give my whole life, like I have given my whole life to pain really up to age 43. And I don't want that to be what my whole life was. So that's it. The the end of the story is suffering and pain and feeling imprisoned or trapped or beaten down or whatever you want to call it. I don't want that. You know, I want peace and I want freedom. So I pursue that. I think that comes through being healthy spiritually and physically and emotionally. So tell us some of the things that you did to get to that health, practically speaking. Well, I did some good things. I did some not great things. (laughs) So, nothing super bad. The good and the bad. What worked and what didn't work. Yes, in the first year, you know, I probably go into a little bit of shock and I go straight into work mode and just do everything pragmatically that has to happen, which does have to happen. And I made sure, you know, I was going to counseling and that was very important for that one space because I continued to work throughout the whole time. So I'm still going to the office every day, dealing with other people's stuff and just kind of packaging my stuff and putting it away. And I would cry on the way to work a lot, cry on the way home from work a lot. But in the day I showed up for my clients, I had to do that. This is my job, my career is the only thing I can do. And I had kids to take care of in a house and everything. I didn't have a choice, but I'm glad for that. I wouldn't want to have like an opportunity to have a meltdown I felt like my kids needed a parent be there. I was just in work mode. Probably what might have been bad, but it worked for me, and you know that, is just being a bit of a workaholic, being able to bury myself in working and getting things done in those first couple years while I just dealt with the shock of the change. And then as that got settled in and I got things taken care of and changed houses and got the kids graduated and everything, then I think I shifted. I mean, I was feeling emotion then. It was just different. And then it shifted down into like deeper where you can really start to deal with the betrayal. There was some people in my life, like in the first year, people that were close to me because they knew that this marriage wasn't always easy. That was kind of like, weren't you glad? It's just over. 
I kind of, and, and other people that wish they could be out of their marriages. And instead of meeting me there, like I had to justify and explain why this was crushing. And that was just like a whole nother battle that is significant to my story, but it's not necessarily in everybody's story. They thought you got handed the get out of jail card. Jail free card is what I was told regularly when I would have a motion. So you went into work mode. Yeah. So I went into work mode and professionally I teach people this and this is what I was working on myself is to be with emotion, whatever you have. I journal a ton. That's probably some messy stuff. I don't look at that. I just do it. I never have looked back and do counseling. I have a group of friends and this is hugely important. To not just have a friend, that's way too much to put on one person, but a group of friends that if you need something, depending what that is that you need. Sometimes I needed a friend to kayak with, just do that. Sometimes I needed to talk to someone. Sometimes I just needed to be with someone. Sometimes I didn't need to be with anyone. A big key to all of this recovery in anything is knowing, learning what's going on in your body and being able to label that and then figure out what you need to meet that need in a legitimate way. I said that before, like I did things not good and good, but I didn't do anything that you all would consider not really good, (laughs) just other than work too much. I don't go into things such as addictive things and that to mask pain. I'm a big not believer in that. So top things, friends, giving yourself space. I had to step away from attending church. That has never affected me spiritually, but I had to step away from that just going all the time because it was painful. It was so hard to walk into church in these beginning years. I did not like the word divorce, still don't like it. And me having to be the deliverer to every single person, the message, because I didn't make this public in the community. Most people didn't know this wasn't waged a war on Facebook or amongst the friends or anything like that. And so most people didn't know. So when I would walk in anywhere, then they'd be like, where's your so-and-so? And then I had to deliver the news. Very awkward for everybody and not fun for me. And at first I would make up like, oh, he's mowing the grass, you know. I just didn't want to talk about it. And I don't still like to talk about it. But (laughs) eventually enough people knew and I'd finally like feel more free. But for at least two years, probably solid two years, I didn't even feel free just to walk about because that can happen. These are other things people should know. When this first happened, this is another thing that stands out to me. In that first summer, someone that knew us saw me in the store and comes up to me in the line. So you're trapped. This is already something I don't like to talk about. And now we're in a public place and starts to talk about it. And, oh, we love you both. And on and on and on. Don't do this to people. In the store, in the first couple months, that's not where you talk to people about their life falling apart and to put a person in the position to have to hear whatever it is you have to say about the spouse, about which you don't know why this is even happening. And in the store is where it's not going to happen. You're not going to talk about that or maybe nowhere. Please don't do that to people Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the store or anywhere. They will tell you when they want you to know. That's stuff that should be written in (laughs) book. That that stuff. Well, I thought even you making the comment that you couldn't come back to church for a little bit, I really like that because church people's response is, well, where should you be? Mm -hmm. But people who are part of church families, extending grace, releasing how often we see you and making sure you're okay in the Mm -hmm. midst of you not being there. 
because I think people are very like yeah, it's like they're watching, like it's sinner if you're not right. in church. But right. it had Have nothing to do. It actually around. made me feel worse. Like I would feel fine with the Lord and everything, and then I would go to church and I would feel cynical and bitter and afraid, and so many memories flashing back, flashing back, flashing back. It's torture. And so it put me in a more peaceful space with myself and with the Lord to just not go. I did it, you know, for myself. It was better spiritually. And you spent years going with your husband and your kids. All of the years. And then to walk into a place that used to be a family tradition or Mm -hmm. a, you know, a weekly experience that you had with your family to walk in there alone. I don't think people realize Mm -hmm. what it's like sitting in a pew by yourself. Mm-hmm. or in a chair by yourself when you're used to having your family surrounding you. Oh, yeah. I used to not care. When I was married, I would go, and I'm very confident and like, oh, I see my friends, and I don't care, and I thought it was fun. It's mental, and I work with that with my clients, because as soon as that switches, your perspective switches, and then you feel like you're in Siberia. Like, there's no people this way. That was before Rona. No people six this way, this row, this row. And pastors do things like turn to the person next to you. They point it out. If you guys go into a service and listen, listen now for the next month, how many times it's pointed out about families and couples just by turn to the person next to you, say hello, greet this person, do this, do that. We're going to have family dinner. We're going to do this. It's Valentine's month. We're going to have relationship month all month. Just on and on it goes. And it's always been that way. I'm not bitter. I mean, I grew my family up in church. I don't even know how to get church entirely safe again. When you have a life that's been portrayed as one thing, and especially for me, I don't feel like I'm dumb in any kind of way. And I feel like I'm definitely street smart and I'm very aware. I've worked with this kind of stuff for a long time. And the fact that some of the stuff that happened to me could happen without me knowing, that takes me maybe forever. (laughs) I'm getting closer, but I I will never feel 100% safe because if I can't know, and I study this and work with this and work with women and couples. And it's your husband. Nobody can. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody can know. And then to have some of our best friends be involved in this, and I can't know that for a long period of time, I will never feel the same. I don't say that bitterly, but I say it as anyone that's experienced like a car crash. You'll never, that's severe. You'll never feel the same. What have been some of the things that has helped you get through this, the church or people, friends can do in a situation like this that has been good for you? Yeah, because we don't want to stay. Don't trap people in the grocery store line. (laughs) I think people are learning, you know, there's being more education and stuff out about grief. You know how recently people have said, like, here's things, you know, over the last couple of years, don't say to people that are going through grief. Things like, if you lost someone. Heaven's like, gained another yes, angel. <laughs> things like that. And so I think it's continued education on that too. Or it's been a year. Why aren't you over this? Mm, or he got out of jail for you. Don't say that. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> help is very individual. That's something I don't think you can write a book about specifically. You can write ideas of things that are helpful, but help is very specific to people. So is that something that if we have a friend who's going through this, we just need to listen and ask them, hey, what do you need right now? Yeah, I would say for sure. That's a good starting place for sure. And as you know, getting a dog was really helpful to me. Right after this happened, we had two dogs. We had a whole family full of stuff, kids and dogs and cats and all of this stuff. And in that year, the separation occurred and before the divorce happened, both of the dogs died. So... The husband moved out. Both of the dogs died. The kids were graduating, moving away one by one through <laughs> through this couple-year process, and the house was just emptying out, and it was just a lot. It was kind of like Marley and me when everything just died. 
That's how it felt. So after a year or so, I got a new puppy. And up to that point, well, at that point, I felt like some chatter and some noise came back into the house. Up to that point, I felt like it was so quiet and everybody had just gone to their room. Me and the kids, we just all went to our rooms and it was just quiet for like a, over a year. And then we got this puppy and it kind of drew everybody back to the living room to play with the puppy. And it was kind of started back and it was important to me because I'm a caretaker and it gave me something that I had to take care of. That really helped me a lot to start, I think, back into feeling into life. Talking with friends is huge, writing for me, talking, not in crowds, though. I had to avoid crowds. I used to would have liked crowds. I feel like this has changed me, but I'm not upset about how it's changed me. I think it's been for the good, really for good. I was maybe a much more free spirit before, but I'm a more peaceful spirit now, and I'm okay with that. And so the outdoors for me, it's big. You know that. Everybody that knows me knows I'm out there, if I can be out there, to kayak, to hike, to ride bike, just to be in the sun. If you guys go by in the summer, I'll probably be in my hammock in the backyard or working outside. You know that, if I'm home at all. And so that stuff's all restorative to me. And it's just important, I feel, that everybody has to find, even in that dark place, you have to find what it is that's going on and what you need. And it can be hard to sort it out. So that's where counseling is helpful. If you can't sort it out, if you're too lost in the weeds, medication, if you need it. I do a lot of holistic medication stuff too. I think that's good. You just have to continually feed your body because you take this trauma all over the whole body. It's not just in your mind. It's not just in your heart. It's your whole body. There's a lot that you do to get yourself healthy again. And you can store that trauma in your body for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And then one day you're like, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you've been working and trying to... To keep things yeah. in place, and then it sneaks up on you if you're not It just sneaks that. up on you, period. At some point, you just run out of your capacity. We all have so much, you know? So tell us what you have learned about God. Who has God been for you in this season of your life? Two words that pop right to my head is peace and provision. That's just a whole other story, a whole other day. But even in the middle, even in the messy middle, if I were writing, I still would have said that that there was peace and there was provision, abundantly provision, things that shouldn't happen, that don't happen to other people. And then that deep knowing peace, even when there was depression, anxiety, I didn't feel like the core in the center. I felt like there was peace in there, abiding peace. And that's just what I experienced. I can't really explain it. Does your light shine differently than it did in the past? Do you let your light shine in ways that ministers to other people who have experienced what you're experiencing or who have been divorced? Yeah, I can actually answer the question because I just have a different opportunity because of my work. I really feel like I'm in the work specialty area I'm in because of the life I lived anyway. And I've been angry about that because it would be nice to pick what you want to do sometimes. And I feel like some sometimes this was picked for me. That doesn't mean I don't love it, that I literally love it and I'm good at it. I feel good at it. But so I've been angry at times in life. I don't need to learn through lessons like hands-on. I'm very good at reading <laughs> and assimilating. I don't need this kind of lesson. Most of the time, it's fine and I enjoy what I'm doing. And I have worked with women more now they just come to you through betrayal trauma. And I've gotten specialized training. Then I work with the New Life Ministry that we were talking about earlier. 
and they have, they call them workshops, but they're like intensive therapy weekends that they do throughout the year. So they do it for women that have been betrayed and they do couples. They have a, a marriage one. And so I work with that too. And I didn't know how that would go. And the director asked me too. She's like the first weekend I was there, how are you feeling? Are mm-hmm. you feeling triggered or whatever? They're very kind, you know? And I'm like, I think I'm okay. There was some stuff in the first weekend when I went for the couples. So I've been able to work with the couples and sometimes I question it. Do I want to keep doing this? Do I want to be exposed to this? You know, do I want to to have to work with couples? And I answer that with, I don't have to. You know, if at any point I think I'm done talking about these subjects or dealing with this, then then I won't. But then I go like I did on Friday night and I work with this couple I've been with for a year and see all the progress that they made and then I have all this joy. Mm. Like, now it's fun because we're laughing and they really had me scared when they first came in because I was like, this is going to be hard. <laughs> and so now we're laughing and that I really like that. And then working with the ladies, I do the same thing. I'm like, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to keep talking about this? And I did decide not to specialize. Like at one point I went to some training and there's a whole road you can go down to just work in betrayal trauma all day, every day. And I definitely knew at a certain point, like that's definitely, I'm not going to wallow in this for my whole life, but women come in and men. And I just am able to share with them professionally the way out and the way through. That's what I do with what I've learned from what I've lived and from what I've studied. What's your pet peeve about how society and or church sees people who have been divorced? Society has no problem with it. Probably some of the greatest work I do in my profession is working with women that are being victimized spiritually to stay in abusive marriages of all sorts. And then the way that marriage is held up almost as an idol over all things. Uh, The church has a very difficult time with The failure of a marriage, I think they feel it reflects on them badly. Being a counselor, I know all the dirt that happens inside the people that live inside a building, a church, and nothing is focused on nearly. No one will feel nearly as guilty than if they are a Christian and go through a divorce. And I know all the things, 25 years of people telling me what they do and they're Christians, they come to me a lot. I've studied this. There's a pretty good dissertation, basically, on the church's stance on divorce from a very early time in the church to present, and it shifted across time, and that's very unsettling to me, that who was in charge of the church at the time, like whether it was the this or the that, the Catholics, the this, the that, what the stance and the attitude on divorce was, so it's not even been the same. And I have to teach women this when they're coming to me and some men because they're feeling so bad and guilty and condemned that they're staying in abusive relationships rather than get divorced. And even that isn't enough. I've never seen people be more guilt-ridden and paralyzed than when faith gets wrapped around inside of something like this. They're the hardest clients I have to work with. What could we do better? (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say, there's a next question. I think some churches have started to educate and to stand behind people and even preach from the pulpit. If you are being abused, we are here to stand behind you. They explain what abuse is and come to us and we will help you and we will protect you. And a few churches have begun to step out and say that instead of the traditional go back to your husband, try harder, work harder, be more, which is still given a lot. If you guys want to educate yourself really well on abuse and marriages and Faith, read Leslie Burnick's stuff, all of her stuff as leaders in the church if you want to read. 
I think we need, we've been talking about this. That was good. You gave us like leaders, some resources, but what are some resources for folks who are in the midst of a hot mess? Oh, hot mess. That's very wide. I mean, like, do you want to plug new life or do you just want to plug, like find a counselor? Find, you know, I know you're not taking a room for a person here or there. Three of you can call Mel. Three can call. Every other Friday. <laughs> exactly. So true. <laughs> There's room for about three right now. Maybe four. I've had some people go off. So if you are a woman who is dealing with a husband with sexual betrayal issues or sexual integrity issues, a really good resource is a book called My Sexually Addicted Spouse. Barbara Stevens is the author. And another book, Intimate Deception, is by Sherry Keffer. And so those are two really good books that if you are with a husband that is having sexual integrity issues... It will get you started in understanding what's going on with you and the dynamics. I mean, I, I don't really just have generalist divorce books because I'm always just working on the specific things of what happened inside the divorce or I'm working with them as a couple to stay together. Can I ask, when it comes to divorce itself, mm-hmm. you know, talking with Scott, Scott's encouragement as we were ending the podcast was was to to really try, to try hard to make it work, to fight for that and to work for that. Those are people who you meet with, the couples who mm-hmm. are working on their issues. Do you feel like you can see a line as a Christian? God wouldn't usually say, yes, divorce. You know, we see in scriptures, he says no to divorce. But for someone who's listening as a therapist, what do you say become the lines? Mm Because you were saying, I see these people who are in church and it becomes worse and worse when faith is wrapped around it. Obviously, the church doesn't know Mm -hmm. (laughs) sometimes where the line is. It's real clear. Abuse, abandonment, affairs have to be treated differently than arguments, socks on the floor, parenting issues, finances. Those three issues, I would always encourage you guys to refer out to a special who's trained. Because it's deep stuff that has to be dealt with. You have to deal with the core of that. And you cannot send people back into those situations. You're putting them at risk. Now, abandonment's pretty clear because they just abandoned them. They walked out. I wouldn't put that on a woman or a man, though, very long. I mean, I would work with them with boundaries. And everybody should read boundaries books, too, by Henry Cloud. But I would work with them. But then I would work with them to be free, to accept. Because a lot of times, also in the church, we do... Hope is a strategy when there's no sign that there should be any hope. And I know we have hope in the Lord. It can still be delusional, to be honest. So women who are waiting for their husband to come back after 20 years and they've been Mm -hmm. remarried or... Yeah. I mean, that'll be very controversial. I'm okay with that, though. There's a point, and it's not a 20-year out point, where you're just using hope as a strategy, but you're not... There's nothing else happening. What are the other things that are in play to change this or to set a boundary or to say, here's your time to come back, to say that you have worth, that you have value, that you can move on, that you're set free. There's just so much in that. I would refer out to professionals on that. And abuse. Nobody should be sending anybody home ever. It's very unsafe, even when it's emotional abuse. And I'm not saying you run them to a divorce attorney. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying that is not safe. It will hollow out, an emotional abuse will hollow a woman out or a man, and they'll be a walking zombie. That's what you'll do to people if you send them back to that. 
sexual addiction and all of that very dangerous it's also a hollow out a woman or a man and it's also just physically very dangerous there's so much in that that needs to be dealt with it just speaks to health and i know this is something we have talked about in the month of love with couples and monica has spoken you know just remembering what monica said doing everything you can to be a healthy wise person because there is so much when we are healthy and we know ourselves and we're getting the help we need. Well, I would say of that, that's where you live in peace and that's where you live in, in spiritual wholeness. And when you do that delusional thinking, you're not in peace and you, you're not in wholeness. There is no end game for that. And one person is carrying the weight of two people on them yes. or a whole lifetime on them. And that's not how it's designed. And, you know, we do hear stories about people whose marriages have been turned around when there has been affairs and abuse and abandonment, but it came because the perpetrator changed. Mm -hmm. They were accountable. They made some changes. So there is hope in that. Well, and it looks like something. That's what I always tell people. It looks like something. Change looks like something, and it doesn't look the same as everything that you've seen to the past. I think that is a really great definition of where the line is, because we've been talking with our couples about struggles and parenting issues or how you parent differently, differently or finances or just personality conflicts or communication conflicts. That happens in every marriage, and you do have to work through that, and you can work through that, but sometimes it's really frustrating, and people do feel like we can't, we're incompatible, we can't live together. And what we're saying is, this is very different. Mm -hmm. The abandonment, the abuse, and the affairs is a line in the sand. So Mm -hmm. I think that's good for people to know that when we say marriage is important and God wants people to stay married and work through things, we're not saying that in the instance of abuse or abandonment or affairs. And all that other stuff, that's the fun stuff. You come to me, I can help you with that. Put your socks in the hamper. Well, Mel, we really appreciate you coming on our podcast and sharing with us from a personal perspective, but also your professional experience. And I know it's rough and it's hard to be vulnerable, but we just, if you're out there listening and you feel like you are struggling in your marriage and there are some issues that need addressed, the three A's, abuse, affairs, abandonment, that you are loved and we want you to be in a safe place. And so we would just encourage you to call and talk to one of our pastors and we will refer you out to professionals as well for areas that we're not experienced in, but there is help for you. So Mel, as you come out of the messy side of your story, can you tell us how you are now and the good that is happening in your life on the other side of the mess? Well... So what I'm doing on the other side of messy is really learning to live in peace and not feeling that I need to push myself past reasonable points, you know, and live under pressure and really just learning how to live in peace and in healthy relationships. This is the best part for me. I am, and you'll know this, 100% now just comfortable with myself, just by myself. I don't care. I mean, I like to be with my friends and I and I do that, but I'm just at peace. I'm just comfortable and I don't ever want to give that up, just being content. 
Thank you so much for coming in. I think this is a little different in the case that it's not someone who is, not that you're not part of the upper room, but I feel like not a super involved, kind of like having a perspective from the outside. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. And I think that everything you've said is so good and insightful. And and I feel like it not just for people who are listening or who have been divorced, but also leadership who are also listening to take this information and say, it's so true. And I think what hit me the most is people who are experiencing experiencing loss and sorrow and grief and trauma, responding to them in the most gracious and kind and loving way we can. I totally agree about the lines with divorce. I don't know everything. I mean, I can help and love and give advice, but when it comes to serious help, we need to have people like therapists and counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists who can speak into our lives and give us some help that we need when it's a little more deep. As far as the church goes, in my leadership perspective, my heart hurts for people who feel like they come into the church and are put into uncomfortable positions, who are spoken to in ways that are harsh, who come in and don't feel welcome or come in and feel like they have to run. Empathy, if we could just take our, I don't know, I feel like we live in our own skin and we have our own perspectives. We need to be able to give grace for people who are experiencing something completely different than we are experiencing. So thank you. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. Make sure you tune in next week for another special guest. Bye. Bye.